Hello, this is Lunar Poetry Podcast. I'm David Turner. I'm supposed to be on a break from podcasting, but something has been bothering me since September last year. We started our last series off with a discussion about poetry in schools back when we received our first lot of Arts Council funding. At the time, I had just started using some new recording equipment and editing software, and looking back, I don't think I did the best job on editing, so I've had another look at it. I don't think I'll do this with any other episodes, but like I said, this one has been bothering me, and with kids going back to school this week here in the UK, it seems appropriate to revisit the subject. This conversation originally went out in two parts, in episodes 77 and 78, so if you want to check out a much longer version, then you can scroll back through our archive. Jacob Sam LaRose hosts this discussion and is joined by Miriam Nash and Keith Jarrett. They talk about the work they do within schools, with poetry education, how they got into educational work in the first place, and what they wish they'd known when they first started out. There are lots of great tips here for those already working as educational facilitators or those thinking about moving into this area of work, as well as teachers looking to introduce poetry into their lessons. You can find links to Jacob, Keith and Miriam in the episode description if you want to book any of them to teach or lead workshops in your school. Also, if you want to learn more about teaching poetry, get yourself over to Jacob's website as he's regularly running workshops and seminars about becoming a poetry educator. Since recording this conversation, Keith and Miriam have both released poetry collections. Keith's Sailor, that is S-E-L-A-H, is out through Burning Eye Books, and All Prayers in the House by Miriam is out through Blood Axe Books. As always, you can follow what we're up to at www.lunarpoetrypodcast.com, where you can also download a transcript of this conversation and follow the progress of our latest Arts Council funding application, which I submitted last weekend. We can also be found at Lunar Poetry Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and at silent underscore tongue on Twitter. And if you like what we do, then please tell your friends and colleagues, either via social media or, you know, in person. This original recording was made possible with funding from Arts Council England, so a big thank you to them. That's enough from me. I'm supposed to be on a break. Here's Jacob, Miriam and Keith. Enjoy. Welcome, this is the Lunar Poetry Podcast. My name is not David Turner. This is the voice of Jacob Sam LaRose. Uh, I have two lovely, lovely human beings and poets with me. Miriam Nash, and if we have a soundboard, you'd be hearing applause right now. <laughs> and the one, the only, Keith Jarrett. <laughs> So, uh, for anyone who doesn't know you guys, I mean, shock, horror, someone who doesn't know your backgrounds and who you are and what it is that you do, uh, I'm going to start with Miriam. Miriam, tell us something about yourself. Who are you? What is it that you do? I am a poet. Uh, I'm an educator. Uh, I'm a sister. Important. Um, I've been doing, I've been working in education with poetry for about seven years. I was introduced to the work by your good self. Uh, and yeah, it's a pleasure to, to sit here today around this table. Absolutely lovely. I, I love that sense of uh, the various different roles. Must not forget that Miriam is also a sister there. Very, <laughs> very important alongside all of the other work that is done. Uh, and Mr. Keith Jarrett, tell us something about yourselves. Hello, I'm Keith Jarrett. I'm also a good sibling, um, I hope. Um, I'd like to think so. And I am a poet. I also write fiction 
and I'm also an educator and have been part of the Spoken Word Education Project uh, for a few years and I'm trying not to count them um, <laughs> because time is flying really fast and that's just some of what I do but at the moment I am full-time a PhD student and I'm developing my creative work while also looking at research in religion. As uh, some of the 13-year-olds I was working with earlier today might say, <laughs> For anyone who doesn't know what it is that I do, hi, I'm Jacob Samarose. Um, I'm the current artistic director and lead lecturer for the Spoken Word Education Program. I run the Barbican Young Poets Program. I also am the artistic director for the Barbican Junior Poets Program, and we now have a Barbican Alumni Poets Program. Um, I support a range of different communities and collectives. Uh, the Burn After Reading community, for example. A large part of my work is given over to supporting the development of young and emerging poets, as well as being a poet and performer and educator myself. I've been working in and out of classrooms and in various different educational facilities and institutions and spaces and community spaces for, oh, I don't know, as, as Keith was saying, perhaps too long to count, but something, if I had to put numbers to it, something around 20 years now. Um, so it's a joy to be sitting in this room about to embark on a conversation around the work that we do as poets in education. So I, I was having conversations with two people who were shadowing me earlier today and talking about my first experience of, of running a workshop and of being in a classroom and how it was that I got comfortable with that sense of leading something along those lines. Um, what were your first experiences? How did you actually get into the work that we're talking about? I think I was just asked if I'm correct, because I, I can't really remember my first ever experience of doing a poetry workshop in a school. I've, I've done other things. I also taught English as an additional language and I should have known better. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, walked into a classroom and went, what do I do now? Write. Why aren't you writing? Why aren't you interested? So I think I really didn't know what I was doing in my first sessions. I think I was just called, and it was probably National Poetry Day, I was asked, you know, go do something and get the kids entertained in writing. So it was a really loose brief, and I just loosely thought, yeah, I can do it. And then I, I did a mentoring project, which was really about looking at certain pupils at risk of exclusion. And so they wanted me to do a workshop where I'd be getting them to write poetry and rap and using that as a way of, of bringing them in. Again, it was a really wide brief and I, I was very inexperienced and I cringe. <laughs> I really cringe thinking about those early days and the times where I just sort of hide in the stationery cupboard <laughs> and think, <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and how was yeah. that workshop that you were asked to do around poetry and rap and that mm. kind of expectation? I mean, was it an expectation? Um, how, how did that sit with you? How did that feel in terms of that sense of, please deliver a workshop that relates to poetry and rap for us? The story of that is a bit longer and it came from some mentioned work that I wasn't very well prepared for either, where I was working with primary school age um, children at risk of exclusion and I wrote a report based on that, which then went out to a number of schools and one of them picked up on what I did and said, oh, brilliant, and you write poetry, how about mm. you do something with poetry and that which sounds good, 
but then I, I wasn't really supported. I was on my own. It was, yeah, I do cringe. But at the same time, I see the good intentions right. behind it. You know, rap is a part of poetry, but it can be a separate discipline. And there's this kind of ex- expectation, oh, there's something cool. Why don't you go and do something cool with the kids? Yeah. That will stop them committing crime. And, <laughs> and it didn't quite work out like that. But I did form some really good relationships with young people through realising that I was slightly out of my depth. Right. Um, right. And then trying to correct it. Yeah, I have this kind of vexed relationship, essentially. I, I kind of fall on both sides of the divide with regards to the relationship between poetry and rap mm. and expectation mm. around that. I remember the earlier part of my career, I did have a period of time where I flirted with hip-hop as a kid, right? So that was at one point very much a part of my culture, but I, I kind of moved beyond that for my mm. own self. Um, while I still love hip-hop music, I would mm. never consider myself to be an MC as such. And like mm. you, I respect that rap is an art form in mm-hmm. itself that has ways of working and skills associated. So I, there is a part of me that remembers a time when there was this expectation that because you were of a certain perceived background, because mm-hmm. you do some stuff with words, right? Yeah. So that's hip hop as well, right? Yeah. So you say you're a poet, but hey, come in and speak to these kids and do some rap stuff with them. Yeah. It's like, yeah, not quite that simple. I totally appreciate that. So Miriam, what are your hip hop workshop skills like? <laughs> I'm occasionally asked if I will rap <laughs> by a young person. Fantastic. Um, but I say no, because I wouldn't do it justice. I want to be in the room Although if that I ever actually happens. Although I am quite good on the Hamilton lyrics. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, I kind of fell into running some workshops or running a writing group for peers when I was doing my undergraduate degree at Goldsmiths. Through that, I met Spread the Words, mm. the wonderful organisation. Through that, I met uh, the poet Sundra Lawrence. Mm. Through that, I met yourself on a teaching project, a poetry project in schools in Harrow. I wasn't teaching on that programme myself. I was supporting it in a kind of administrative way, which has been another part of the work that I do, producing and administering projects for young people. That was a very formative experience for me, seeing that work. Um, and seeing the the power of that work and being involved in it, but also being able to look at it before I had a go myself. And then I obviously had the incredible luck to, um, the the incredible privilege to work with with you as one of your shadows. And I think we worked together for almost a whole year, actually. And I remember I worked with you in a number of different schools and pupil referral units and museums. And so I really got to see, yeah, I was a very, very lucky member of of your shadow community. Yeah, so I got to see that work happening in some different settings. Mm. And then some way into that, we were both working on a project at Erith School in Kent with the wonderful Doug Bloom. So as part of that, I ran my first workshop in a classroom on my own. But you were there to support that. I did have a very supported entry into poetry and education mm. as a as a workshop leader which uh, I think about and talk about actually all the time in my work because part of what I'm able to communicate is that I do this work and not only the teaching the the not only the workshops but you know I feel I am a poet because of 
the support of yourself and and other poets who who made it possible for me to even see that this was a job mm. uh, however strange and tenuous it may sometimes feel mm. i could see it there and i just thought this is incredible work that i didn't know was was happening and i was not only shown that but able to be brought into it i love that listeners i am blushing right now you can see this <laughs> through the airwaves or uh, over the uh, digital streams. Um, thank you for reminding me of some of the work that we, we actually did back in the day. I want to celebrate the administrative side of what it is that you've done, and maybe we'll come back to that because, I mean, for all of us in the room, we have these varied perspectives. So, you know, experience of doing this work as teacher, as well as poet and facilitator. Um, experience of not just being the poet in the classroom but also supporting the poets in the classroom and liaising with teachers and venues mm -hmm. to to ensure that that work happens and to make sure that everyone's supported I'd love to come back to some of that a little bit later in the conversation but I also want to pick up on that sense of the support mm -hmm. that you said that you had because again I know um, for me when I was upcoming and learning my craft and learning what it meant to be poet at the front of a room that wasn't a performance space but that was actually a learning space mm -hmm. you know a lot of that I learned on the hoof so to speak mm -hmm. there were very few if any actual pedagogical workshops or workshops around the the notion or the craft of how you pass your skills on to students or how it is that you work with other people in that way. So a lot of what it is that I've taken on, I mean, obviously I've studied since then, but a lot of what I picked up in the early days was just through doing it and figuring out what it was that worked and going into a workshop and saying, okay, that didn't quite work as I planned. Hmm, gonna have to rethink that and come back with something different. Why didn't it work? Okay, let me try this the next time. Now we have and I mean, this isn't necessarily accessible for all, but there's more support for these kinds of things. So again, Keith, you have an experience of going through the spoken word education program. Miriam, you had an opportunity to be supported by not just me, but other teachers that you had access yeah. to. Tell me something about that experience of the kind of support or the kind of investment in development as an actual craft that you may have had and what that actually meant to you in terms of your development. I first met Peter Khan mm. a few years ago and he contacted me via recommendation from somewhere, someone else. We had a Skype conversation. He told me about um, this radical project which was starting, which is a collaboration between him, different poetry organisations and goldsmiths. I thought, wow okay, this is very interesting. I'd never heard of anything like that before. An opportunity to do what I'd been doing. By that time, I'd, I'd worked in schools doing poetry projects, mentoring projects as well, where I was slightly more comfortable in the classroom mm -hmm. um, than my first experiences of hiding in the cupboard. But going through the, the process of being under in a traineeship almost and then also having that academic backup to it being at goldsmiths doing the ma and having colleagues other people who are undergoing the same process for me that's just been infinitely valuable and i just don't understand why it hadn't existed in the way it had before mm. and why 
there there weren't more opportunities for people to do that. Just even basic things about how you present work and present examples, and obviously there's the the teaching stuff of you know thinking about people who might have dyslexia or problems with vision or whatever, and and thinking about how you present your material, but then how you demonstrate, how you prompt poems, um, how really simple, basic things which I'd never thought of, like, okay, if I'm going to set an exercise for students to do, I should have done it myself first, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I should have a, a, a template poem of my own, as well as another example poem. Things like that, no one told me that until actually I went through that process of training and I thought, wow, I feel like there were wasted opportunities where I was in schools where actually pupils who weren't engaged, they may well have been if they got it and if I'd had that, you know, that extra background. I'm not saying that I'm a perfect teacher or workshop leader and I'm not saying that everyone is going to pick up something from a poetry workshop but I, I feel that having that background having that training has hugely helped me teaching but also generally in how I present myself to other people. I think the support that I had was what even got me into the classroom and made you know made me feel like I could enter that space. I remember it used to be so terrifying. Mm. I mean, the night before I would go into a school, particularly when I started to go in all on my own. You know, first you have to find the school and it's really early. It's on the other side of town. It's got several entrances. (laughs) (laughs) You you know, you have to get in, (laughs) first of all. I'm thinking Um, of a particular school in East London that has two different sites that I think we all are familiar with. (laughs) Um, and yeah, you could be at the lower site and actually realise that your workshop's supposed to be at the upper site or something yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's and then, ten minutes walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then you have to find the, you know, the teacher. And you have to sort of be presentable, but you're sweating. <laughs> and you, you know, you weren't quite sure what to wear. <laughs> you know, finally you get into the classroom. So that, you know, that support was was really, really uh, important just in, in uh, giving me the confidence to be able to know how to enter into that space and talk to teachers and you know make sure that I knew what I needed to know and feel that I could ask questions and I guess even with that support still when I start was starting I thought that I was supposed to know things mm-hmm. you know I thought that I was supposed to just be able to get on with it and that was a requirement you know if something went wrong I would feel really bad Whereas now, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about having some more experience is, you know, I think, well, things don't go as planned all the time. Mm -hmm. And part of your role as an educator is to be able to adapt and see what's happening and kind of be aware of yourself in the space and not get lost, I guess, among all the, you know, with all the ideas of, of what you think you're supposed to do. Because if you're so caught up in, you know, presenting in the right way, if you're so worried about getting it right you're not in a position to give support and energy to the students mm-hmm. hallelujah um yeah so you know you need to be able to have that support to to be able to to do that to arrive in such a way that yeah that you're there for them i i guess every teacher has to go through some kind of wrangling yeah. with themselves in order to get there but it's so much easier to do with other people yeah it's fascinating the first year of teaching for just about every teacher that i've 
ever kind of spoken to or had any kind of interaction with that first year of teaching is like a hellish experience yeah. while you figure out who you are and how you relate to the work that you're being asked mm -hmm. to do but then you learn from that incredible kind of you know intense period of pressure and um, just trying to do right by your students and by everything that you know you're supposed to be offering them and you come out on the other side of that a better teacher ideally mm -hmm. um, there's so much in what you've just said both of you that I really want to celebrate that particularly um, three things that come up from what you just said Miriam in terms of our relationships with failure the notion of being present in any space where we're teaching and that relationship with um, improvisation and being able to think on our feet. Yeah. That thing about failure is such a big thing because we have to be able to hold the possibility that things aren't necessarily going to work as planned, yeah. right? But also we have to balance that against the fact that we've got these various different stakeholders in the room, right? So we've got the students themselves, but we've also got the teachers or whoever the representative of the institution that we're working in. They all have their various different expectations. Mm -hmm. So we have to kind of balance that sense of, well, hey, look, it might not go according to plan, but we'll do something mm -hmm. with this sense of, well, these guys are expecting something and these guys are expecting yeah. something. And I'm kind of, you know, beholden to what it is that they expect. Balancing that can be a really challenging thing, right? So there's that, there's that sense of being present in the room. I love that sense of presence and being completely kind of just there, right? Being in the room and alive to what's being offered and, and not just following a script. Being responsive, this notion of responsive mm. teaching. I love that idea and that's something that I try and put off over to all of the spoken word education students that I'm working with now. That sense of responsive teaching and being able to shift and respond mm. to what it is that your, your students are giving you back. And how, I mean, the number of times I've turned up in a workshop space and what it was that I was told would be you know the situation or here's the brief and you get there and it's like this, this is nothing like what you told me was gonna happen that this, this space is completely different these students are completely different the teacher who I'm speaking to in the room is saying that actually this is a workshop about I don't know naval history and I thought it was gonna be about whatever and we had these conversations we set it all up so being able to think on feet is so important and it comes back to that sense um, Keith, in, in terms of what you were saying around expectation, and I'm fascinated by that, and I don't know if you guys have any thoughts along these lines specifically, the, the notion of facilitating or teaching, there is this expectation of us as kind of creative professionals or freelance literature workers, whatever, um, that some part of our income will come or be derived from facilitating or working in a classroom environment. Yeah. And it really comes back to, for me, this question of beyond that expectation, why are we doing this work? Mm -hmm. it, it, surely yeah. it's not just about the money. It's not just about I need to be able to earn X amount from this mm -hmm. teaching activity in order to be able to survive as a quote unquote poet. Surely there's something more in terms of why. I mean, why do you guys do this work? Why is this work important? Is it important to you? Why do you guys do this work? What's it all about? To me, it feels really integral to my work as a poet because I feel like writing on its own is is wonderful and it's it is so amazing to to spend time uh, learning that craft and reading and working with other poets. But I think being able to work in education, whatever that means, you know, I, and that really doesn't have to mean any one particular thing. You know, I don't just mean working in schools. 
but taking the poetry into different settings for me that feels essential to what poetry is mm. what poetry is for mm. yes i have those moments on my own at my desk where i think yes this is it but i also i have probably even more moments where i'm working with somebody um you know whether it's an adult or a young person whether it's someone who has experience or who's writing their first poem where there's this recognition that we're working with creativity here and that's an incredible thing as well i mean that's such a privilege to be able to work with people on something that is so personal because you know having an audience is about communicating the work that you've done mm. but using poetry and education it's communicating the process mm. like communicating that wrangling that learning that you're doing yourself so to me that's really important about this work is that whenever i go into a space i'm just reminding myself the people i'm working with are creators in their own right yeah. and they may not identify as creators at that particular time but they are because we all are that's why i do it there's something beautiful in what you just said that i might come back to you after i uh, invite keith to say a few words about why it is that he does this work but that notion of the relationship between process and product mm -hmm. in the settings that we work in and again how a lot of the expectation unless you have someone that you might identify as a champion teacher who kind of understands and really does appreciate and really values the work that you're doing, there's a sense of, yeah, we want them to write poems. Yeah, all this kind of airy-fairy process stuff. No, no, no. <laughs> what we want at the end of this period of time is we want 30 poems or we want 10 group poems or we want this, you know, we want the the, the finished anthology or, you know, the focus on the actual product is, um, you, you can see the, you can appreciate the importance, but, to create space and to actually create an ability or to allow for that space to focus on the process that can be communicated beyond the session that you're leading. Yeah, 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 I celebrate that. Keith, why? I'm going through a process where I feel really weird at the moment because I spend all of my days, probably about between six and eight hours a day I spend at the computer mm. just transcribing interviews that I'm doing as part of my research and it's driving me crazy <laughs> in a good way because I know it's temporary and it's part of a bigger project which I'm really excited about but I know that if I just sat on my own writing poems all day and not communicating in other ways interacting with people sharing process and sharing how I do things and and how different possibilities is just as important as me having my creative time and all my time alone to work you know with me and my computer or laptop or you know notebook or whatever it is as much as I crave that a lot of the time and especially at the end of a long day where I'm in a school teacher I'm like I just want to be in my own and my own <laughs> um, I crave that but if that was all that I had to do in my life mm. I wouldn't be satisfied either so it's a weird thing because Sometimes I, I do almost hate it, especially working in schools. And that was a, another thing with the Spoken Word Educator Project. I'm, I'm no longer embedded in a school. Mm. You know, after my last day and after really missing some of the kids that I was working with, suddenly I was like, yeah, I'm free. I don't have to put up with all of the pressure that goes in being in a school. I find schools incredibly depressing places. The institutes themselves and the management and the way they kind of work, but it does something 
working in that, having those challenges, having the, mm. the conflict between the head teacher who wants no problems, no fuss, nothing controversial, the teachers who want results, the kids who want either to be entertained or to do something that engages them, yeah. and you who wants to make a difference, like all, all of that, and as, as a creator as well, wants to have your own artistic integrity rather than go into some curriculum or, you know. So there's all of these conflicts and that challenges. It creates a lot of heartache and stress and I probably have more hair on my head if I didn't ever work in schools. At the same time, there is something so valuable and so rewarding and I've also had undoubtedly some of my best experiences just being in a school, mm. getting to know pupils who I learn from as well. Mm. I have learned as a poet to write through teaching poetry and being challenged and all of that. And yeah, yeah it's, it's something that does scare me. I have to be prepared for it. <laughs> I have to be prepared to teach and it isn't easy. It, it feels like something, you know, it's that expectation. Oh, you write, you should teach it as well. Right. It's not easy to do it properly. Mm especially in schools. I think working with young people is a particular challenge, but I, I, I couldn't see myself not working in some form or another with young people, helping them you know, create poetry. Mm. I think it's worth pointing out part of the model of the spoken word education program, which was, as you said, that sense of, okay, for the first year, you'd spend that time working alongside whoever the lead on the program was, having seminars around both the craft of writing and the craft of teaching. But then also you'd be in a school one day a week, I think it was for your year, right? Yes. Yeah, actually, so you're yeah. in one day a week working alongside Peter, who was lead at that in that year. With the facility, it was kind of on-the-job training, that, that facility to try things out, see how they would work with, again, the kind of support that Miriam was talking about, with someone like Peter in the room who'd be able to feed back to you after you'd run that workshop. Yeah. But then the second year, um, once you've gone through a year of that kind of instruction, that kind of training, the second year you'd take on a school for yourself. Yeah. And you'd be in school, your generation of spoken word educators, you had, was it four-day weeks? Four-day yeah, weeks. Four-day yeah. weeks. So I stepped into the program and took it on in the second year of the program, which is when you guys were just starting your placement. One of the thoughts that I had that I put in place the following year was that I felt the four-day week, there needed to be a bit more flexibility for people around that. And again, one of the things that you were, were touching on was this notion of balance, yeah. right? And being able to balance your needs as working artists between the work that you do in concert with other people, mm. the work that you do in spaces that are filled by other people, the work that you do that is feeding into other people's development, but also the work that you necessarily need to do as writer in that space between you and the page. I mean, the whole thing about the Spoken Word Education program at the moment is a sense of that balance between you as teaching artist and you as poet in your own right doing that work. It's powerful stuff to hear you talking about. That sense of what it actually takes to be in an educational institution. I mean, hats off to all of the teachers, any teachers that might yeah. be listening into this conversation. Amazing. All of us who've, who've worked in any of these kinds of roles can appreciate and have some appreciation for 
uh, the work that it is that teachers have to do, crazy hours, Monday to Friday, plus whatever time it is that they put in from their own time, preparing lesson plans and making sure that they're ready for the next week ahead. You know, there is so much that is asked of them. And as teaching artist in a role, if you have that kind of full time or almost full time placement, I mean, four days a week essentially becomes five days a week. Yes. Because you're there and you are delivering work for those four days, but your fifth day, which is supposed to be kind of time out for you to be writing and, and doing you, really becomes, do I have everything I need for the next week? And that's something I think we forget, regardless of whether you're a spoken word educator or a resident artist or any other program that you might be working on. I think one of the things we sometimes forget to account for is that preparation time. It's not enough for us to just turn up. Hey, I'm here now, let's, let's write some poems. You know, there is that preparation time that when we fail to account for, we kind of end up bankrupt in terms of time. Yeah. Um, and we kind of lose that. It, the time has to come from somewhere and we lose that time for ourselves, right? Which is really important. I know self-care is a big thing that I want to talk about in a moment. But Keith, I, I just wanted to come back to something. You were talking about this notion of relationship with students and how that is formed in terms of, I think it was, and you can correct me here, but I think it was that sense of, what your needs might be in relation to what it is the needs of the students might be? Was it something along those lines? Yeah, there were so many different conflicting needs. And it's a bit like, you know, if you pick up a children's book in a bookshop, the the, the bookshop isn't trying to sell to the child necessarily. It's the librarians and the parents who have the money. But at the same time, the child needs to be interested enough to, you know, if it's a series, they can say, mommy, mommy, I want the second one, or dad, I want the second one. My challenge always is thinking, you know, who's this for? It's for me, but then actually, what does the pupil need? What do I want to get out of them? You mentioned also, like, about, you know, not necessarily having the same having an idea of what a class is going to be like, but then having different expectations. When I'm told that there are certain ability or told different things about the pupils or not, again, I have an expectation. Oh, okay, so this is what the teacher expects of them. And so this is what I want to get out. And I'm constantly challenging myself to, okay, I want to get them to be, you know, if this is someone who has never written, I want them to write a poem for the first time. So there's my own ego in so there. So you which is, those kinds of challenges. You know, yeah. But a lot of that is my own ego, right. whereas really what is in that child's interest, maybe actually they just need to chill. <laughs> and, you know, and have some time where this is the first time that they've even had the idea that they can express themselves. Yeah. But then at the same time, if this child wants to express themselves, but I know that the school has a particular rigid policy and says you cannot talk about gangs, guns, crime, this, you know, they've got a whole prescriptive list. Then I've got that challenge on top of it. Okay, what takes priority? Is my own politics (laughs) going to take precedence over the schools or what I think might be in the child's interest? So I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that I think it's it's I was going to say it's easier but it's not it's when you're embedded in a school where you're there for more than just once then you can really take on board those challenges a bit more along with the preparation then there's the emotional work so you've got to factor that into Mm -hmm. your preparation time you know if it's just a one-off you know you're flying into a school then like in that preparation I'm I'm I've sort of got tiny little key points okay let's try and make sure that they all write 10 lines but at the same time you know 
let's really get to what I want from mm. that is, is, is it to be fun and for them to not be put off by poetry by the end of the hour. <laughs> so do you, all, do you have these kind of baseline, I mean, regardless yeah. of whatever the workshop might be, yeah. each of you, do you have your own kind of personal manifesto in terms of for every workshop that I might go into, I want to be able to leave these students with an appreciation of poetry, for example, or um, I want to make sure that they have this understanding of, of how metaphors might work. Or Do you have your own set of whatever the workshop is, here are three key points that are just a part of my practice when I go into a space that I want to try and ensure that these students are left with generally. Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of things that I kind of want to to be in the room or ex mm. kind of core experiences, mm. but no in terms of a line requirement or everyone mm. has to write a poem even. Mm. The first one is definitely what you what you said. It's fun. Yeah. And that's something that you taught me very early on. It's like, you know, you need to have fun delivering your workshop. And that helped me a lot in getting through kind of the first fear of going into a classroom in the early days, mm. just thinking like, oh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So easy to forget, huh? Yeah. yeah. And thinking, okay, you know, that's why, you know, it's relevant um, me, me being a sister because, you know, being my, with my sisters is that we have a lot of fun and like with my sisters, I'm probably sillier than with any other people Right. You know, and so I guess I try and just get a little, a little bit of that. Often, you know, if I'm going in for the first time, I won't know the students, right. but to try and have a sense of fun. And then I think there's something else which is um, very easy to achieve, but I, I'm glad to kind of think of it as, as a core uh, thing, experience is, is, you know, they get to meet a poet and they get to ask them questions. You know, obviously I'm going in, so that's that's very easy. That's already kind of ticked, but it's it's like they, there gets to be some exchange where they get to interrogate. Well, what is a poet? What do you do? Mm -hmm. So I have to remember never to take for granted that they will understand what a poet is or what my role is and why I'm there. So, yeah, I think that's that's a really important one. It's not so much a requirement, but I do find myself working with the notion of specificity and using yeah. detail almost more than any other anything else in terms of technique because even beyond you know thinking about what a poem is I want them to understand uh, how language sticks with us mm. in our minds mm. and I want them to to have an experience of that so usually that's going to be in an initial session by me sharing probably a poem by myself, maybe a poem by someone else, and asking them like what they could actually remember after hearing that in the air without being able to read. Because that, that's helpful in every situation in which they're asked to write yeah. Yeah. in school. You know, even, even in speech, actually. Yeah. <laughs> being able to convey something um, in a way that people will remember. Keith, can you, can you add anything to that list? In terms of the things that you, uh, when you know you're going into any kind of workshop, whatever that workshop might be, are there are any kind of base principles, base considerations, regardless of what the, the specific content yeah. of that session actually is, are there any base principles that you generally adhere to in terms of what that experience should offer the students that you're working with? I mean, my first one is a negative, which is just, I, I don't want to ruin poetry for them. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. That's so easy to do. And the other one is connection. And something I learned from 
being in the, the school where I was for a year mm. was not to write people off which is a tough one because I did it in different ways because I would target my aim was initially I really want to go for because of my background in mentoring and exclusion and all of that I, I was concentrating on kids who are deemed bad or deemed at risk of having behavioral issues or whatever and then also the kids who were super interested and wanted to come to spoken word club so I thought okay I'm going to go for for those and people in between I wasn't that oh. concerned about but right. at the same time look looking back that was really naive there were a few kids that I think I, I really could have paid more attention to and one in particular by the end of that year she was so fantastic and helped um, mentor other kids in poetry and it was such a great experience so my greatest thing even if it's a one-off is to try and take each person on their own merit as much as I can but then that you know say it's a class of 30 and it's an hour that's not very feasible but even just to like get everyone to say their names and just to make sure that I get eye contact with everyone and keep positivity going that's the the, as the bare minimum never to dismiss anyone even when I'm trying to get them to work and work but even if they're like I can't be bothered and I know I've only got this one workshop for one hour with this person who I never see again I'm going to keep an atmosphere of positivity that one won't put them off but two will make them think well actually maybe we've connected and there's something in short to open doors if I can, to keep them open, if they're already open, yeah, that's it in a short, you know, if yeah. I don't really know them beforehand. Just in terms of my own thinking around the, the kind of base principles that I like to bear in mind, I try to give over or try and leave my students with some, some kind of technical awareness, even if it's mm. one point, some kind of technical awareness or technique that they can use in terms of the craft of writing or in terms Mm. of their poetry right and that that kind of goes towards this sense of I want to make sure that they're left with something that exists beyond me so it's not just about me being in the room being the poet who's arrived who's given them this hey great experience and then disappears for a little bit but that sense of here are some skills and it's not just about me it's about your relationship with this this thing that we call poetry i want to try and ensure and again i have that experience similar to you keith being brought in to work with students who are identified as um, failing or who have difficulties in the education system or whatever along those lines and i want for, for, for so many of those students and for so many of the other students I've worked with, regardless of whatever their background is or their sense of attainment or achievement, I want to give them the sense that poetry is something relevant. Yeah. Yeah, something that is accessible, mm-hmm. something that they can claim as their own. It's not just this kind of yeah. old dead thing over there, um, which also leads into this, this kind of conversation between poetry. And it kind of comes back to the poetry rap thing that we were talking about before. Maria, I'm still keen to hear you rapping. Um, <laughs> but that whole sense of the relationship between poetry not being cool and the things that are cool. So that sense of po- the, the relationship between poetry and spoken word, for example, and how we brand things as spoken word to make them accessible. Poetry is a broad field. And 
I want to challenge you. I want to push you a little bit. You might say you like this part of that field, which might be defined as spoken word, but I want to show you that that's just one, one point on an, a large map and you can travel across that map as much as you want. There are so many different places that you can go. We've spoken a lot about our experiences. If we were challenging you to offer up any thoughts, any advice to an emerging poet educator who, who wanted to do more work or who has perhaps run some workshops but is looking to skill up, looking to figure out how to do better, how to succeed, how to develop their vision of success and what success means in a teaching experience. Um, what kinds of things would you put forward from your own experience that, that people should maybe bear in mind? To come back to, to the notion of support that mm. we've talked about a lot, I think it's really important to ask yourself, where is my support coming from? It's easy when you're starting out, or at least for me, I just thought, what do I need to do mm. to be able to do this work, to be able to be there, to get there and be in that room um, and be able to handle it. But I was thinking about external things. I need to meet this person, make this connection, I need, but not about the support that's needed. We need to ask the organisations that we work with, the schools that we work with, for support. And in order to be able to do that, we need to have a sense of what that support is. Right. So I think, you know, the, the way to get that starting out is to talk to other poets uh, who have been doing it for longer, the others who are just starting out and even by having a small support group mm. with you know between poets who are working in different settings um so maybe you know, like those starting, things are really important yeah starting something up for yourself if you're not aware of something that you can join just being able to say hey guys we're doing we want to do this kind of work what say we band together and share experiences even if we're i mean there is so much that's happening now in terms of spaces that are being set up for people to learn or i mean there's the apples and snakes masterclasses, yeah. for example you know there, there are things that are happening but beyond those to be able to kind of create some kind of community or community of practice for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And just to make sure that you have the support that you need, wherever mm. that comes from. Yeah, it, it may take a while to fully understand what kind of support it is that you need. I'm really grateful to certain poets that I work with, in particular this year, Jasmine Kure, for reaching out and saying, okay, I'm doing this work, you're doing this work, some other people are doing this work. And we don't have supervision. We don't have regular supervision, which is built into some other professions. We need to do whatever we can to ensure that the organisations and the schools that we work with help us to get that, but we also need to, to take responsibility for it and, and give it to each other mm. and ourselves. That's something really important. And again, I guess it, it takes a little bit of experimentation, but to try and figure out what kind of teaching work you actually want to do and what kind of work you are suited to doing. Yeah. And that's something that I remember you challenging me on, Jacob, from very early on, you know. <laughs> and and it's, it's great, isn't it? As a learner, you know, years later, you sort of have these moments where you think, oh, this is really, really what Jacob meant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it's great to, to go and experiment and I would encourage people to have the support that they need to be able to bring their work into different environments. Yeah. Don't feel like you always have to be the person leading it. Yeah. Go and be a shadow. Go and shadow yeah. different artists. Expose yourself to different practices. Read books. 
but also, you know, all the time be reflecting on like, where do you actually, uh, where does it actually work for you? Where does it spark for you? And, you know, for example, I think for quite a long time, I felt like I needed to be able to do the one-off workshops where you go and do the assembly in the school and then you work in different classrooms. I occasionally still do that work and it can be great fun, but I had this mistaken idea that I sort of needed to prove to myself that I could go into almost any situation. That you were capable of it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, actually, I much prefer working on longer-term programmes. Yeah. I think I'm much better suited to working with a slightly smaller group of students over an extended period of time. It's very valuable to to know that. There's this part of the teaching practice, in in terms of the way that I conceive it anyway, which is you have to create space for your students to learn for themselves mm-hmm. in Caribbean culture there is this there this phrase if you can't hear you must feel and again the flip side of that can't hear must feel thing is you're gonna learn <laughs> you're gonna learn for yourself if you, if you can't take it and again actually what we're celebrating there is it's not just about me telling you um, what it is that you should know it's about you figuring out for yourself in a constructed space and um, it's a joy to hear some of those some of that thinking kind of land yeah yeah beautiful but also that sense of actually really genuinely getting that sense of well look there's a lot of teaching that needs to be done in this city in this country across the world not everyone needs to be teaching the same thing or in the same way you're doing yourself and you're doing your students much more of a service if you're figuring out who you are as teacher, what it is that you can provide. And yeah, great, challenge yourself. But yeah, figure out where you're best placed and and push that. Any other tips that we want to pass on? Any other tools? I would just go on a practical level, just making sure each time you go into a workshop, you know that you've covered the basis of of, from as far as what you've been told and to try and get that information. So I know, generally speaking, I'll try and do a Prezi presentation but that requires the internet and the projector so just making sure basics like that do they have internet do they have projector there's some schools I've been into which don't allow USB sticks to be used and I didn't know that until like I walked into a school tried to like and I thought come on (laughs) and I tried to and I couldn't use that and so then that created a whole different set of problems that's like your it um, department saying we're yeah. not going to accept any foreign usb yeah. devices because that yeah. might corrupt our network with a virus or something yeah. like that so forget that so yeah. i get it now but at the yeah. same it's just so annoying because every other place that i go a usb is kind of the minimum and right. with a powerpoint or even what like i could have done something just by accessing the documents that i had but i, I had no way of doing that then also just knowing if you don't know the place that you're going to, especially if it's a school or something like that, just knowing who to go to and, and if there's any issues come up, who do you refer the people to? Are you going to be there on your own? Mm. Is there going to be someone else there with you? And then again, the, what the different expectations are. You know, do they want you to do turntabling without, <laughs> you know, without your consent? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just having that, absolutely as, as as much in writing as possible as well as on the phone just having good contact with whatever space you're going into mm. and then again just checking checking my own motives obviously it's lovely you know sometimes i i have gone into a place thinking great it's it's you know a, 
a couple of hours and I'm getting paid, which is nice. But actually, I'm I'm here to share my experience and my knowledge and my craft. So just making sure I'm at, I'm at the right place to do that. And I'd jump in and I'd support, I mean, in terms of what you were saying about having things on paper so that you can always refer back to them, um, you know, having those conversations. I know, again, with all the love to the teachers that we work with, we all know that everyone's busy. So we know that sometimes email conversations are delayed because marking needed to be done and yeah. so on and so forth and really you're the poet who's possibly only in for the one session or only in once a week or once every fortnight or something like that so there are other priorities that get in the way but having that conversation via email so that you've got that kind of chain that you can look through and refer to and if someone says well we thought you were coming in at this particular time and you were needing this you can actually refer back to well actually it was clearly said and disseminated to this body of people that this is what we needed just in case there's any confusion you know having that kind of recourse is I think a very good thing along the lines of paperwork making sure you've got your DBS and your CRBs and yeah. your uh, your public um, liability insurance and all those kinds of things um, just making sure that you are covered it's the kind of stuff you hope you don't need but if you do need it it's good to have in place, yeah. right? Um, and knowing that there are organizations, so for example, I believe Norway still does this. If you sign up as a Norway member, yeah. you get your um, you get your public liability insurance and you can do your DBS through them as well. Um, and there are other organizations that you can approach along those lines. There's an organization called the Artists Network, which isn't necessarily about literature as an art. But yes, yeah, signing up for the Artists Network gives you a fair amount of cover or gives you access to a fair amount of cover for um, public liability insurance and indemnity, which I found out about when I was running workshops for the Tate one. In, in terms of, again, the practicalities, having that awareness of what the culture of the school is yeah. and what the procedures are if something happens. So from simple things like, again, we were talking about appropriate dress within a space and knowing that you're probably not going to be going into a school wearing a cap or a hat because in some settings, you know, even if you are dressed neatly but still wearing a hat, there is actually a school rule against headwear. Knowing that before you go in, whether it's that kind of stuff or whether it's if something happens in this classroom, then a student will... I mean, generally, you should have a teacher in the room anyway, ideally, depending on... You know, if you're employed almost full-time as a teacher or a member of staff, then maybe there's a slightly different thing there. But if you are an artist who's being brought in to run a short-term workshop, then largely you should have a teacher in the room with you as a representative of the school in case anything happens that needs, again, a member of staff to be aware of or to march things through procedures. Mm -hmm. We all know, however, that there are circumstances where you'll arrive, teacher will be there for the first five minutes and then say, 
You've got this? You've got this. Great, good. I'm just going to go off down the mm-hmm. corridor and just take care of this other thing for the next... Yeah. Never see them again. Um, so kind of knowing what the procedures are and, and what's appropriate, knowing or having some sense of if something happens in the room or if there's a discipline issue, mm-hmm. then you're actually going to that office over there. Mm-hmm. An awareness of the rules or the regulations or the, the kind of procedures around disclosure, for example. Mm-hmm. If something's said in the room that suggests that something's going on at home that needs to be escalated knowing who it is that needs to be informed of that not putting yourself for example in a position where you promise okay no one else will mm-hmm. see this material i promise it's yeah. just you yeah. it's just on this piece of paper but then you see that piece of paper and you're like oh wow there's something happened yeah. and now i am duty bound mm-hmm. to report this or pass this on to someone else who has um, a responsibility for disclosure in this space. Um, have Have any of you had an experience where a, a student's cried in one of your yes. workshops? Yes. How did that feel? A few times. And particularly under, I'll, I'll call it a traineeship, well, I was really shadowing Peter Kahn for a while going right. into the school. And he developed one particular session that was guaranteed to, to have at least one pupil cry. And I've since just done it as a one-off workshop. And again, like, you know, they're, they're boiling and it's like, wow. <laughs> it's quite a generic thing, you know. It, it's, I mean, the title is like what it's like to be for, you know, someone who... And there'll always be a few kids who will do something silly, you know, what it's yeah. like to be a spaceman, for those of you yeah. who are. Yeah. Um, but then there'll be someone who, like, what it's like to be bullied or this, yeah. and they'll go really in deep. Yeah. And then suddenly the atmosphere in the whole room changes, yeah. and people are like, whoa, and then the tears come and whatever. It's brilliant, because I feel, wow, something has been opened and accessed, However, it's how you deal with the, the, the aftercare yeah. and how that is perceived by the institutions. So some schools and school management will think that's a very negative thing. Suddenly there are these kids crying and being emotional and it doesn't fit with the school ethos. Or things have come up in that, yeah. which I then have passed on and disclosed. Because I, I do... Immediately, and this is something again, a, a big one, like before the writing process, saying, Look, this is your opportunity to express yourself. At the same time, you know, things that we say about each other, we're not going to gossip about each other in the room, we're not going to allow things, certain things to leave the room. However, if there's something that I'm slightly concerned about, and it's good to know the name, I might, you know, just have a chat with yeah. Mr. So and so or Mrs. So and so. And, and that will be good because the whole point of this exercise is to open up a bit. That said, you know, we don't want like every and everything to be going outside the room. So if, if you couch it in those terms, generally speaking, it's, it's works. Um, so you frame it so there's an awareness of the fact that if anything does flag up, yeah. you may well pass that on to an appropriate person. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a really good example that you bring up um, you know this exercise that people can take in quite a humorous or light mm-hmm. direction yeah. and if they want to they could go somewhere more serious but I think it's really important to have 
those options and to never be pushing people mm. even without realizing because mm. that's you know we, we would never try and push someone to reveal something they didn't want to yeah. but if there's an implicit feeling that in order to um, fulfill the task you kind of mm. need to dig deep mm. you may not realize how difficult that might be for certain students so to yeah. always make sure that writing a poem about football is as celebrated as writing a poem about your little sister's illness yeah creating spaces for these things to happen right rather than saying you must be this way or that way yeah Yeah. i mean so in terms of that oh you came in you made the the kids cry what's wrong with you you're the poet you're supposed to do fluffy stuff about clouds and things why are you making them you know so there's that kind of on on one extreme that sense of doing the light fluffy work on the other extreme there's a sense of well i'm the poet i i'm i'm supposed to come in here and and go deep and bring out all of the you know really the the trauma and all this Mm -hmm. kind of all that kind of that notion of creating the space that the students need I think is so powerful rather than yeah pushing them in any one direction but giving them those options and and that's the other like where (coughs) else is there the opportunity to Mm. deal with death in school at the same time don't push it like I I know as someone who's been participant in the workshop that, you know, that at any given moment, there are things that I want to write about and I don't want to write about, things that I feel safe writing about, things mm. I don't feel safe writing about. Mm. So, like, just providing that opportunity to go with it. The other advice is just to allow a lot of air in in the workshops, to, to go in multiple directions that don't force yeah. humour and lightness and that don't mm. also force stuff that can be really heavy because i mean yeah sometimes i do want to talk about death and sometimes i want to talk about roses yeah you know like and sometimes both at the same time same yeah Yeah. where else is there for our students to talk about their innermost thoughts and feelings and experiences and their kind of perceptions on the world to bring their insides out in some way in a space that is supported for them to kind of stand up and read that work, put forward that expression, and to have a class or a showcase, an audience in that showcase, put hands together and go, yeah, we hear you. Mm. We hear you and we celebrate what it is that you've just written and offered. Those are special spaces, Mm. they really are. Along the lines of these kinds of requirements and things we should bear in mind as people going into schools and running workshops and working with teachers and working with students and doing this work. Someone talked to me about the notion of, of looking after yourself in this, because so often we're forgotten. So sometimes I run workshops, in fact, I run a lot of workshops for people who do this kind of work. And I'll say, okay, so who are we serving when we're in a class? Who are the stakeholders, right? Who are we thinking about when we're running a workshop? The first thing that most people will say is the students, obviously the students. Mm. We're there for the students. Okay, yeah, that's good, but there's more. Okay, so who else? Oh, okay, the teachers maybe. Because yeah, actually some of the work that we do benefits the teachers. And we're supporting their thinking around what poetry can be and how poetry can work. And we're supporting their understandings of who their students are. They get to see their students in different ways. So yeah, the students, the teachers, yeah. And you're like, actually there's more. And they're like, who, who else? Who else? Yourself? I mean, what are your thoughts on, on, on that? In terms of that notion of looking after yourself in the work that you do, how important is that for you as a consideration? We've kind of skirted around mm. it. Like, well, one of the big thinkers on pedagogical theory 
um, was Paolo Freire and like yeah. critique that kind of banking model of education where you know you have the teacher who's like at the top of the pyramid who's sort of imparting knowledge and sort of pouring knowledge into these empty vessels the pupils and they must get as much knowledge as they can that top-down view not only is hierarchical not only belittles students and necessarily aggrandizes the teacher but it also it just ignores the importance of the pupils as people who already come into the space with a lot of knowledge and a lot of value that they can add so I know whenever I go into a space whether it's with adults but more often with young people that I'm getting something from them sometimes it's just mannerisms and, and ways of talking and I'm paying attention to that, you know, I love language, so I'm thinking, oh, wow, they're saying that in that way. Okay, interesting. Mm. So sometimes it's just that. It's their sense of humor. Sometimes it's their sense of optimism. I, I can be quite pessimistic at the moment with politics and everything else, but they're like really young, hopeful, you know, and like, oh, okay, you don't think the world's going to end. Good. Um, <laughs> it's the humor, most of all, like some of these, especially the so-called problematic kids even when they're insulting someone mm. they'll say something so creative i'm like wow that's amazing that's really great they're coming with different cultures and different language different first languages sometimes and sometimes if i get it right and if i'm getting things out of them they'll say well actually you know in turkish or whatever you know we'll say this right so suddenly i'm getting poetry if I pay attention to myself as a learner and as someone who's soaking up, it changes the whole dynamic. Mm. And then, you know, obviously I am the adult in the room and there needs to be some respect for authority. Right. But at the same time, it's not a hierarchical one. It's just I happen to be in control and I'm the one being paid. You're the one who's forced to be here <laughs> by law because yeah. you're a minor. But actually, you have value, yeah. and I'm, and I'll try and be honest about that as well, and say, look, you know, I I think what you have to contribute is is amazing. There's a way in which you're yeah. also being fed by that interaction, yeah. right? You're gaining from yeah. it. With regards to that kind of pedagogy of your person, all that kind yeah. of thinking of the bank of education, there's also a guy called John Maeda who put forward this notion of the relationship between traditional leadership and creative leadership. Yeah. And the model of traditional leadership is kind of analogous to the notion of the orchestra and the conductor, yeah. where the teacher is or the leader is the conductor and yeah. the orchestra follows whereas the notion of creative leadership was put forward as um, being analogous with the jazz band where you're a player within this kind of collaborative space and you may lead um, some of the standards you may lead how things are moving but again you're responsive and you're listening and you're you're in the mix with things yeah. and again that notion of being fed rather than just being solely the lead yeah. of that kind of experience is a beautiful thing is it fair to say that we teach from the heart mm. yes yeah we have a care for the work that we do and for the people that we interact with. Yeah. So how do you sustain that energy? Where does that energy come from? How do you keep that fire? And how do you keep some of that energy for yourself? It's a challenge. And yeah. I think in many ways, because the way that I've been working in education is quite different to the Spoken Word Educators program where you're you know, essentially a member of staff yeah. within a school. There is a great privilege in that role of being able to come in 
to a space and, and come out, you're not carrying all the weight of that institution in the way that the teachers do every day, mm. you know, that, that they're engaging with that space absolutely every day. And we, we all see and know the, the incredible work that that is. If I'm teaching in the way that I want to teach, it's very much from the heart. And that can make me very porous as well. That can make me actually quite vulnerable in a way. If I'm not taking proper care of myself, it can be very overwhelming to come into contact with this many people, this many stories, and to be that open. I know that I have a sensitivity there, and that's part of what makes me who I am, and that makes me want to do this work, and the writing, and and the teaching. But if I'm going into a space and I'm not able to kind of fully hold my own, then I, you know, I shouldn't be going into that space. Right. And so, I guess the tricky thing with that, in, in like with any work that we do, is that it's very easy to put up a front. It's very easy to, you know, get good at what you do and be able to to sort of go through it without really being in the right mindset to do it fully in a way that kind of fully respects the students, the teachers and yourself. For me, uh, it's involved a lot of learning about uh, taking care of myself, taking time off when I need to. You need to check in with yourself and say like, okay, how are you doing? What are you going to do to make sure that this day is okay for you? Okay, you're going to have to actually go out for the lunch break and not be in the staff room where you're going to have to speak to a lot of people. Or, you know, you're just going to arrive a little bit early in your classroom so you get to kind of see see the room, <laughs> just take a breath. But, you know, what are you going to build into your day so that that happens? And I think it is about, you know, these sort of small actions. Oh, who am I going to call after my session just to say oh this went great or this thing goes so great so that you're not carrying everything by yourself do you have that experience where you kind of pick up and realize that you're actually in the middle of a period of time where you haven't been looking after yourself and all those good things that you should be doing have just fallen by the wayside because you got busy and it just became really difficult to keep all of that stuff up and you, you kind of realize what it is that you're actually missing. Have we, have we all had that experience? Oh, yes. Yeah, of course, right? Literally. It's so important, but it is so easy for those things to fall by the wayside. It needs to become part of our practice, yeah. right? And also it can be shared we shouldn't underestimate the people that we work with, the teachers. You know, if you're on a slightly longer term program, mm -hmm. you get to know your the teachers that you work with and, and you know, be able to have a little conversation, little wind down afterwards, debrief, you know, how did it go? Like, we, mm. we need those things. We shouldn't think that we can just function completely on our own. We are not machines. Yeah. No. If you do find yourself in that situation where you are kind of on your on your own and you do feel you've kind of been left mm. to own devices, just the basics of proper sleep yeah. and yeah. decent nutrition, especially yeah. if you're like going from class to class, just making sure you're eating properly and sleeping properly. Um, I find that helps. And when I start to let that go, it's usually because there's other things going on and I'm feeling a bit stressed and overwhelmed. And then... You know, sure enough, a few weeks later, I'm ill or, yeah. you know, something's not quite right. So, for sure. What is our work worth? It's that great question that you get asked, you know, yeah. in the if you have some time where your students can ask you questions and it's maybe the first session 
there'll usually be someone who's like, how much are you being paid? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is our work worth? So y- you all have been teaching in various different ways and guises for, you know, a fair while now, mm. right? Do you still have that kind of awkward moment when someone asks you to come in and run a workshop and they, they maybe they haven't pitched the fee yet and you're like, they haven't pitched a fee yet. At what point do I actually start to talk about a fee? Or do you, do you guys still have that kind of that thinking, that thought, that that awkwardness around asking for monies for the work that, that's done, or asking for a fair set of monies for the work that's done? Depends on who. It, I can be really awkward anyway with with emails and stuff, um, <laughs> with conversation even. Like it just depends what space I'm in. It's best to be just upfront yeah. from the get go on. A couple of occasions, it's been expected that it would be free, which is weird. But yeah, otherwise, it's it's good to know beforehand. And just there are polite ways of doing it. And I think that comes with practice of just saying, you know, even having it as part of a list. I was, you know, so what kind of a fee? How long? You know, basic. Because again, when they say half a day, you know, half a school day can can mean like from eight till two. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, in a full school day is only an hour and a half extra. So it's like, okay, so th- things like that come as part of it. And I know, I think Apples and Snakes and other places do actually say um, what the kind of expected going rate is. So you can find out if people are really being insulting you by, you know, offering you 50 quid for a whole day and traveling up to, you know, <laughs> to some place where it will cost you that much to get there. I know that I do a better job if I feel that I'm not being insulted. I'm being paid a decent amount and I'm expected to turn up. It's professional and then I behave like professional. But if they're sort of just treating it like, you know, it's a little favour, then of course I'm not going to come in. As, you know, as good as my attentions are, my spirit isn't going to be the same as if I feel I'm doing a professional job. Miriam, your thoughts on that sense of awkwardness in terms of um, what it means to have that conversation around monies when it comes to this work? Because, you know, there is this sense of you're an artist, you should enjoy doing this, you know, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I think what's tricky about that as well is that because we generally get paid in daily rates, the daily rates may Mm -hmm. seem high to people who are on a regular salary, and that's really understandable, but it's just a very different way of being paid. So, you know, if your daily rate is £250, £300, you know, it may sound like a lot of money, but when you factor in the fact that there's, you, you cannot do that work every day, necessarily, and you're bringing in your... You're, you're really bringing in your expertise and the job that you're doing is not something that you can do in an everyday way. You're actually being paid to come in to do something special. And so you can't go about your business in a kind of everyday way, you know? So I think that, yeah, it's really important that that is being valued and understood. I feel really lucky in the teachers that I'm working with at the moment. I've, I've been having a really good experience with the schools that I've been working with in the last year. Because I've been trying to work more with schools that are delivering long-term programs, there's already that investment, you know, and that's that's amazing to be able to work with teachers who, on top of everything else that they have to do, are putting on this after-school program or making sure that in the time, in the incredibly stretched timetable, there's time for this thing. 
I don't know that I feel awkward, but I still don't necessarily feel great at negotiating on my own behalf. And I think that's something that we, again, can easily take for granted. Like, I'm a writer, I'm an educator, you know, I know I can deliver a great workshop. I love what I do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I have all those skills of being a freelance professional. I'm not necessarily great at all the mechanics of that. That's a really important um, part of it, that notion of, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about in this time has been, you know, how we manifest as educators, as poet educators or artist educators or teaching artists in educational spaces. But there's a large part of this conversation that really is about how we operate as creative professionals, how we do that work of um, promoting ourselves, how we do that work of managing the administration and how we do that work of managing the finance of what it is that we do. We were talking a little bit earlier about the notion of really the work that we're doing kind of being almost unregulated. As you were saying, there are no supervisors necessarily. You're working for yourself. Um, but that also means that you are responsible for setting your kind of pay grades, so to speak. So, yeah, there's an awareness of the, the market that we exist within and what the economy is, right? And what a fair rate might be in relation to generally what budgets are available from schools and all that kind of thing. But there's also a sense in which if you're constantly going by just what the set rate is. So, again, for example, we might use the, the measure of an apples and snakes rate, which I think is fantastic in terms of an understanding of a base. Line. But if we continue to take that as simply the baseline, you know, where do you go in terms of as you grow and develop experience? Yeah. Are you always going to be at that rate? Yeah. And how is that rate indexed, for example, to inflation? Yeah. And how do you I mean, do you get a pay rise at any point in this career? You know, we have to think about how our work can be sustainable for ourselves and how it is that our work and we, as we consider it as work, mm. um, how it is that our work facilitates the lives that we live in the same way as anyone else's work in any other sector or industry will facilitate the lives that they live. All right, there is so much to speak about. There's so much else that we could talk about, but I hope you, the listener, have gained something from this conversation. I know it's been a joy to be in this room with Keith and Miriam. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you. Thank you. More than welcome. And thanks to uh, David Tanner and Luna Poetry Podcast for making this possible and make this, making this happen. Thank you for listening.